This episode of the Durian Pod is brought to you by Hexclad, official cookware partner of TDP. On this episode of the Durian Pod, young love brought you to Los Angeles, essentially. Young, stupid, oblivious love and complete ignorance <laughs> of the, 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 <laughs> the challenges in life will get you far, kids. You know, we're writers. We, we live, we wrap ourselves up in our failure, <laughs> then we sink in it. And then this amazing little like self-hate cocoon of self-recrimination of like, Jesus Christ, you're such a poser, yeah. failure. Like it's a delicious part of our process. <laughs> That's a fight for all of us to just get out there because people aren't trying to cut us out of the narrative. But people tell stories from what feels like an authentic place. It goes beyond like writers and directors. We need so much support. It's not going to take one amazing auteur that to change the industry. Cheers, guys. Cheers. And continuing support of Oxobra October. Continuing support, yes. We, uh, yes, continuing. It's almost over. We are drinking uh, All Free by Centauri again. Yes, we are. Um, and if you guys haven't already seen on the podcast, it is a zero-calorie zero sugar type of beer alternative and we've been drinking it pretty much all month but i i enjoy it i enjoy it i, I like it yeah <laughs> but I, I but i i love it when i mix it with stuff yes it's a very good medium for for cocktails yes or mocktails sorry cocktails <laughs> i'm already ruining some october spirit right now What's up, everyone? My name is David. And I'm Jasper. Behind the camera, we have our wonderful Heidi. Hi. And you are watching another episode of The Durian Pod. This is the show where we showcase our friends who have fought against the societal standards but still made it to the top. Today, we have huge guests. She has been in the game for more than 20 years, having written and produced on countless projects on TV, including One True Hill, Life on Mars, she broke into the feature film space, co-writing Crazy Rich Asians, groundbreaking. And then a few years later, she made her Disney imprint with Raya and the Last Dragon. She then went on to make her directorial debut just this year and gave the world Joyride. She is the absolute best kind of energy human to be around. Adele Lim in the house, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What a welcome, what an opening. And I got to tell you, after that ramp up, I feel like it was all just a path to get me here, truly, to the <laughs> Durian podcast. If this makes your resume, uh, resume, I would be really happy. Done. No, it's happening right now. All right. Put, it, put it on IDMB. Yeah. yeah. IMDB. <laughs> but, it's so um, good to see you, Adele. How have you been since? I've been great. I love, like, I'm sitting in your space right now. And I, the last time I was here, it was this massive, like curated, bespoke tasting menu you had done. I brought all my close friends here. Yes. It blew everybody's mind away, oh, as you God. do, Jasper. Oh, you're too kind. And yes, other than David's charm and cocktails, that's the reason I'm here tonight, because I was promised food. So oh, kind. I'm so, so sorry kind. to disappoint you. Uh <laughs> Just it better not. Listen, this Centauri is refreshing and delicious. It better not be all that's on the menu. Yeah. Oh, don't you worry. That's exactly, I think, the perfect segue into all of this is we actually have an amuse-bouche for you to get started. Are we ready for that yet? I'm hungry. I think Adele's hungry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm hungry, too. Okay. And Heidi's hungry. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we always start the show with an amuse-bouche, and that's going to be your first tasting. Um, I'm going to go ahead and prepare that, and I'll be right back. It'll be really quick. Can't so. wait. My yep. bouche is ready to be amused. <laughs> I would just leave the Whoa. Hot dog. So this is Ooh. miracle pork fat, and the reason why it's doing that, it's smoking down, is it gets so hot, it's coming down at about 550 degrees. So you're really getting a little bit of that flavor. There we go. Well, y'all can't see this, but it's about like the most exhilarating, dangerous slash sexy thing you've ever seen, like pork fat over oysters. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Go down. Wow. Okay, I'm turned on. <laughs> Who isn't? Like people listening to this are gonna be making babies tonight. <laughs> Can you feel? No. <laughs> the pork fat on the oysters. Yeah. The amuse-bouche this evening is fresh Pacific Kumeyaay oysters. We are serving it tonight in a hybrid of our Spanish tapas, which is something we did almost a year ago. So we actually have an olive tapenade that we make from scratch and there's star anise and five spice. Very simple, it's blended in. We finish it with a passion and lemon juice mixture. And then what you just saw with all that smoke and flame is Iberico ham from Campo Grande. Ooh. We torch it to get the fat and it's also been crisped on top so you have a little texture. And then we finish it 
with a little bit of pickled Persian cucumber. So there's a lot going on in this bite. It's gonna be a little Mediterranean, a little Asian, a little smoky, but the creaminess is gonna bring it all together from that wonderful kumiai. So please help yourselves, guys. Uh, Heidi, please come over yeah, from your I will. stand. Wow. But Adele, please do the honors of having the first one. All Beautiful right. presentation, I'm, Chef. Thank I'm you. digging in, and also I gotta commend you on that whole um, descriptive to this. I can't wait. <laughs> it's also, it just sets you up for disappointment. That's <laughs> <what it is. laughs> mm. It's supposed to be very layered when it comes to the flavor. You're gonna hit that passion fruit, lemon juice, yuzu you... type of thing first. Of course. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm hitting all those things, and then after you get through it, that like little bite of—is that the ham? Yeah, the mm. bite of the ham finishes mm. it all, but I think the creaminess of the oyster brings it together. Love a kumiai. That was so so good. How does mm. it feel? Like you had like 17 different steps and in ingredients in that thing. It felt, and it took me all of like two seconds to <laughs> wolf it down. <laughs> I know this sounds a little bit cheesy, but mm -hmm. a lot of what. David has shared with me in terms of his research about you and what I've known about you mm -mm. is this characteristic of you kind of being that all around encompassing person that is able to uplift, but yet kind of conjoin, like join people together. And I wanted to show this like a dish that kind of I felt showed a little bit of you and your uniqueness. And uh, I hope it somewhat shows. Jasper, that <laughs> wow. is about the sweetest, nicest thing anybody's ever done for me. Like, I have not had my personality encapsulated in an oyster. <laughs> this is a first. I don't know if anyone has. I would like to then have my name trademarked on this oyster. <laughs> <laughs> you guys heard it right here. It's, All right. This is the Adele. It's the Adele. Yeah. It's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> As with any amazing script, the main character needs to have an origin story, right? Mm -hmm. So let's... Let's hear your origin story. Where did you grow up? What was your upbringing like, oh, et cetera? Yeah, well, gosh, I grew up in Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia in this town called Petaling Jaya, which nobody's ever heard of, mm. but it's the main suburb of Kuala Lumpur. And this is going to sound weird, but honestly, it feels like the other side of the coin to Los Angeles because it's the same thing, like big, huge urban sprawl a ton of different cultures and races all kind of growing up together. Mm. You're kind of like just in each other's messes and the food is phenomenal because of that. Mm. I think we just didn't get any recognition until Anthony Bourdain like showed up and then they were like, you have the best street food. We're just like, you yeah. think? <laughs> but I, I think the, the, the issue with growing up there is that you eat so well all the time and you grow up thinking like the rest of the world is like that. So grew up in Malaysia and, you know, never thought I would be living in, in America or doing what I'm doing right now. Mm. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I think I'm very lucky that way, you know, just kind of figuring it out from the time I was four years old. But when you're growing up in Asia with, you know, Asian parents, et cetera, and this is the story you hear from all creatives, even people in like, you know, what you do, Jasper, and that your, you know, your vocation in life isn't about like what, you know, lights your creative, passionate, artistic fires. It's about how are you going to pay the bills? <laughs> yeah. And I was just lucky. My parents were in advertising and they thought if I wanted to write, I could be a copywriter. And wow. that's why they were OK with me coming to school in the States. And that's what that then that's what triggered you to move to L.A. or... Yeah, so I went to school in Boston. Yeah, majored in like some communication, one of those like communications degrees you cobble together, which is kind of nonsense. Yes. But the <laughs> here's the thing, though, when you grow up in Asia and you come to an American school, like mm. I am not a smart person. I'm not like a book smart person. But when you're raised in the rigorous like trenches of Asia, like coming over here, everything's like a piece of cake. Like it, that's like a low, low key flex. But it's <laughs> it's just, you know, it's hardcore. So school wasn't wasn't hard. But the wonderful thing about school is it just put me in touch with all these, you know, young Americans who, you know, who were there to pursue their passion. Like they mm. wanted to work in TV and in film and they, you know, they just took it as a, their birthright that their stories were important and needed telling, mm -hmm. which is a complete contrast to how I grew up. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I think the short story is I met a cute boy who lived in, who lived upstairs. And after we graduated <laughs> and we went out after we graduated, I was going to go back to Malaysia and he was going to move out to LA and write for the X-Files. And that sounded so like so much fun. So that's what I ended up doing. Wow. Holy cow. So, so you're saying that young love brought you to Los Angeles. Essentially. Young, stupid, oblivious love and complete love ignorance <laughs> of the, 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 <laughs> the challenges in life will get you far kids. Yeah. So you moved to LA mm. and did you accidentally kind of, you know, find your craft or how did you, what was that moment where you fell in love with it? 
always knew I wanted to be a writer, like I said, but I didn't know you could write for TV. And yeah. I grew up watching so much TV. You know, I just didn't have a lot of like freedom to go out to the movies, but TV you could just watch from home and so much American TV. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and again, I went to school, I went to public Malaysian school where the medium of instruction was in Malay. And the only reason I think I could adapt and it, the cultural shock wasn't horrible when I was 19 and 20 is because I watched a ton of 90210 and like all the, you know, and friends and. You know that show? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I love it. They're with it. I mean, there's like a, there's like a newer version of it. There but, is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I didn't sound like this. I had a much heavier Malaysian accent, but I also speak fast. So I realized if you speak fast with an Asian accent, people look at you a certain way. And so, you know, there was a lot of there. I had to like kind of kind of shift it to this like Southern California accent when I came out here, because <laughs> when I moved out here, you're dealing with a lot of things of like, I don't want you know, I don't want my writer's room to know that I'm a recent immigrant who didn't share any of their cultural, mm. like, you know, touchstones of like prom and what middle school was like, what camp was like. Mm -hmm. So at that time, the whole game was just to like, not lie about my, my past, but just, or my background, but make sure that I was presenting in a certain very professional way. Mm. Because, you know, and I'm sure everybody, you guys might have experienced it. I'm, I don't know, but there's a bias to the kind of accents people have. If you have, yeah. if you have a British accent or an Australian accent, that's charming. That's intellectual. Yeah, they love it. Yeah, yeah. you roll I in. I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you roll in with like a heavy Asian accent, and suddenly, like your otherness becomes a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's annoying. I don't know how that came about, but you know, Asian accents are sexy, right? Hello? Jasper's like <laughs> blinking at you, like I. <laughs> oh, I um, mean. Okay, okay. I, I'm now, I, I'm like trying a nice, to like, fight, Korean I'm trying to fight for us. You're putting me on the spot here. I find it endearing. And I think it's more so because of like growing up around Asians. Like, you know, my, yeah. my family's Cantonese. Our mm. neighbors are uh, Taiwanese. The people next to us, I believe, were Toishan as well. So like mm -hmm. we got to really hear that. And for me, it's more endearing. I don't find it sexy. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, there, was a, there was some sarcasm behind but, that comment. I mean, but you know. I, I retract now. To, to each their own, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I want to change all of it. I want yeah, to no. make that accent sexy. Absolutely. I think that'd be really nice because mm -hmm. then it do, you don't have that feeling that you were talking about where is that, that yeah. foreignness, right? Where you yeah. feel like you have to adapt. Yeah. And if you don't do that, you're not going to make it. And I think exactly. that's a big fear. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm like, I think we're all like kind of done play acting, you know, to fit in in a way. I think we've realized we try that experiment, kids, and it's, you know, it doesn't yeah. work. So the only way you, I think for a lot of our community is, you know, making our own party and not trying to be part of somebody else's party. Yeah. yeah. Really like yeah. that. So you do many, many years of, you know, TV. Can you speak on a story or a time when you can like profoundly remember where you failed so hard you wanted to quit? Like, you know? <laughs> That's like every other Wednesday. Is like that's, <laughs> you're talking about like TV and film. Like every, if, it doesn't matter where you are in the food chain. There is always some heartbreaking failure. But I'm glad you brought that up because I think for anyone, not just people in our community, you know, you you just we tend to see the the bright shining successes, and people yeah. don't speak as much of their failures. When I first joined when my first writer's room I didn't know this but when you're a staff writer especially when you're a young staff writer your first script is going to be garbage like mm. it is going to be garbage unless you're some sort of like wunderkind yeah. and writing's one writing is like especially screenwriting there was this perception that oh you just have to show up like a fully formed writer and that's nothing could be further from the truth that there's a sharp learning curve and that you only kind of, you know, get better through mentorship and spending 10,000 hours writing. It, it sounds like that that industry, there's like no time to re reflect on the failure. It's like almost like retrospectively like, oh, damn, like two weeks ago, that was not how I wanted it to go. But then you're <laughs> so it's so like fast paced that you kind of just have to like pick up and, and keep keep moving. It is fast paced, but you know, we're writers. We we live, we wrap ourselves up in our failure, <laughs> then we sink in it. And then, you know, it's this amazing little like self-hate cocoon of self-recrimination of like, Jesus Christ, you're such a poser, yeah. failure, like you who can't string two sentences together. It's a delicious part of our process. Yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> <laughs> I'm like doing a bang up job of like attracting yeah. future writers into <laughs> no. our industry. <laughs> Join us. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what 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 
do you what kind of have mindset do you have to have to in order to endure like those you know rejection after rejection or failure after failure mm. you know i think for our industry a yeah. thick skin a eh? and you know really coming from a place of joy a place of joy and not being afraid to fail for a long time like there were not a lot of asian american writers like there would be 13 white guys in a room and me and and I think after many years and then <clears throat> finding organizations like CAPE and, you know, mm. what we realized was that there are a lot of Asians who came in from amazing schools who were great writers, but they just didn't last. And a big mm. reason for that is culturally, and I'm hoping that's changing now, Asian Americans tend to underrepresent and overperform. They, you know, don't like talking about themselves or boasting about them. It's mm. seen as boasting, yeah. mm. talking up a big game. They prefer to, you know, let the work speak for itself. But in it, that is not the way it works in entertainment. You have to, you know, project confidence. You have to look and seem like the kind of person that the rest of the writers and producers want to be in business with. Are you a great storyteller? Yeah. Even simple things like how to ace like a general meeting. You think... You sit down at a general meeting with an executive, you know, like the head of ABC or whoever, or the head of TV, and they're asking you about your background. Your job is not to say, oh, well, I, you know, I got a scholarship to Northwestern and that nobody gives a shit. Like they're looking at you saying like, how is this guy different from the other 300 people I've met? Does he have a story? Is he interesting? Is he going to be able to hang with the other writers? And so, you know, these are these are lessons that nobody tells you. Nobody mm-hmm. tells you until you you're in it, you hang in there long enough, and then you realize, like, oh gosh, like um, I'm doing this all wrong. Yeah, yeah. As an as an Asian person, I feel like you kind of have to like almost unlearn what you kind of grew up with, you know, and to be able to to shine like mm-hmm. in the way that you need to in that in that space. Yeah, I mean, it's a generalization, but yeah, but the exciting thing is like the new generation of like uh, of filmmakers, I think, have done a really great job of shedding that skin. And you you can also tell in all these mentorship programs that we have every time we meet the new class of aspiring writers and and filmmakers. First, all the stories were the same, like, oh, my parents wanted me a lawyer, engineer, doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that's and that's great. It's fine, and it, it's probably true. But you also have to realize that every other Asian American has that story. So when you roll into an, a meeting, or that's what you start oh. with, that does not make you different from anyone else. Where we are generationally, the, the exciting thing is this: like we want to be able to get past like the the race cultural trauma that we've all kind of experienced, and get to that point of like. Okay, separate from all of that, how, who, what's my story as a creator? Mm-hmm. What do I have to bring to this world that's amazing and special and fantastic and not just dwell in that space of like racial injustice? And I, and, and I say this not to dismiss racial injustice. That's horrible and there are things that need to be done and we're still in a broken system. I'm just talking about you as an individual creator and that special spark. Like you want to get to that spark. You want to peel back all those onion layers of just like the world is gross yeah. and, and get there. It's like peeling back the layers of the durian, right? You have to really <laughs> uh, get to the mushy part. The yeah. mushy part. Yeah. yeah. The, the, goodness, <laughs> the goodness. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I'm thinking about, as you're saying all of this stuff, I think about the journey into culinary mm-hmm. and very much so it's exactly what you talk about, but behind closed doors. There's yep. no cameras filming all that. But every Asian American that I have met so far in the last three years who uh, has joined some sort of restaurant, gone to culinary school, was always told head down, but they don't realize that they actually need to put their head up high. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that are getting promoted to sous chef and then CDC and then executive chef. Everyone else is just stodging and staying a prep cook for four or five years before they get recognized. And it's so interesting to hear that that's also happening, I guess, on the entertainment side. Yeah, I think, you know, I've heard it. I heard it's the same experience in all these different fields, whether it's finance or tech, that there's this, you know, it's like this pyramid where there's a ton of amazing overqualified Asians on the entry level and huge and, you know, middle management. But then when you get to that top 10 percent, the top one percent, it's not the people who keep their heads down and mm. shut up and do hard work, you know, you know, hoping that uh, the system is going to reward them. The system is not going to reward you at the end. You know, at the end of it, it's people who are 
where in America, it's like people who are bold, who are brash, who get along, you know, with the, you know, with the brass or, or, you know, get into fights with them and then go off and like start their own thing. Like that's, those are the people who make a difference and, you know, are splashy. So this is the point where we go into our favorite dish. It is the, one of our main courses that we're serving at Roslyn right now. I'm going to go ahead and prepare it, but be prepared for some good eats coming up. Ooh, I'm getting ready. (laughs) Awesome. I'll be right back. This is our favorite dish. It's a main course that we're serving here at Roslyn right now. And this is actually the first time we've ever done it. So technically we haven't served it yet, but we have been doing these prawns. So we get these Thai water prawns that are flown in overnight from Bangkok. These are the same giant ones that go for about eight to 10 inches Mm -hmm. and they're caught out of the river. And then they're usually skewered on the street and then roasted. So in true fashion of honoring the ingredient, we actually wok fry it. There's no butter, just a little bit of oil and garlic, and then we torch flame it. So that's why you might've heard that fire going on by my little flamethrower. And to bring it all together, this is actually paired with the mocktail. So using that same peach base with a little bit of cinnamon and, and a reduction on there, we mixed it into a namjim sauce. So you have fish sauce that's been caramelized, fresh cilantro, smoked ocean trap row adorns it to kind of add a leather layer of smokiness. So you have sweet, salty, savory. And then the reason why everyone loves these prawns is because of the head guts. And I don't know if you're down. You're down, right? Uh, I was going to warn you before we jumped into this. Like, nobody (laughs) ever really understands how third world I am until they see me tear into prawns. Yes. So they're known for the golden guts. And so Mm. what we do right now, Rosin, we have risotto. and We have people actually grab the head and squeeze the head juice onto the risotto. Yeah. But for this, I'd recommend just eating the meat and just Mm -hmm. do it all together. Okay. All right. Yeah. All this right. is going to get messy. <laughs> right, let me check it off. Can't. Yeah, take your jacket off. Don't want to ruin that nice jacket. Uh, wow. I'm going to put, I'm I'm gonna put a bib on to protect. This is, this is how you know it's real. When people have to start, like, you know, adjusting their outfits to take this down. Mm. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot going on here. Okay, I'm just going to copy you. Finish it, hair guys. Uh, yep, just, just. I like to just rip it out. You just, like, suck on it. You just bite into it. It's all the juice, the sweetness of the peaches is already inside. Oh my god, it's so good. That <laughs> is an amazing flavor. I feel like I need a cigarette. <laughs> it's delicious. Just it tastes so good, but again, to really enjoy it, you gotta get a little messy. Yeah. Yeah. The squeezing part was was a little explicit. Mm-hmm. Hey, food is splashing juices. Food but is explicit. It's central. It's like sounds like somebody got a lot of action on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> Yours was a little dry though, David. It was a little dry. Oh, I, was, I think I was doing something wrong. I, I was thought like, it was going to be that kind of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's segue. Yeah, let's let's We can't talk to you without talking about Crazy Rich Asian. It was, it was such a groundbreaking uh, you know, movie in the entertainment space. It was first Asian, majority Asian cast since the Joy Luck Club. Joy Luck Club was 1993. I revisited the movie like a few weeks ago and I just reminded me how good it was. I loved all the Asian nuances, like the Tupperware. Some parts were a little frightening, like Michelle Yeoh, she did such a good job and she almost reminded me of my own parents. That, like every time she <laughs> yeah. like, jumped on screen, I, I, I kind of tensed up a little bit. The Asian parent acceptance, mm-hmm. that, that like kind of hit me really hard, you know, because it's like, I resonated with that so hard, you know, so a really great movie. It was like the Asian Avengers. There's so many good <laughs> actors and actresses. I love that. It made a lot of money. And yep. you were offered a, a opportunity to write the sequel, which is an amazing opportunity, right? Yeah. But you learn about your, the compensation that you would get. And the compensation was, I think, about an eighth of your, your co-writer, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it was garbage. Yeah. But yes, yes, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so and and not and and just to wow. put put it in context, her co-writer is a white male, and an eighth is is you know doesn't seem fair at all. It kind of just kind of shows you how or where the industry is. But you walk away from it, mm. and can you tell us what your mindset was then compared to now, in in that scenario, and maybe how someone should navigate maybe that scenario in a similar situation when the industry kind of shows its ugly face. 
Well, I don't think I can pretend to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. It's about your comfort level. Yeah. But a few things about me is, A, I have, I have an impulse control problem, probably kind of a little bit of a temper I inherited from my dad. But I was also really fortunate. I came up as a television writer. I had a whole career as a TV writer, producer, showrunner before that. And there are lots of feature writers where that exact same situation, writers who are much better than I am, more qualified. And, you know, they've had to go through instances like that. But I and part of my attitude was also that, you know, I knew what I was worth. I knew what my quote was in television and in entertainment. If you come if you come over and write features there, the business affairs attitude towards my quote was like, well, you know, you wrote Crazy Rich Asians, which is your first movie. And so we're going to pay you like we pay any like recent graduate out of USC. Mm. To which my reaction was, and forgive this, but you did say I could swear. I was like, fuck that shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the only reason they got this, the script that they did and the movie that they did is because I spent 17 years honing my craft as a screen as a screenwriter. Like I know how to write a I know how to turn a scene around. I know how to create compelling arcs for characters, for a major story. And also I was very aware of the fact that still at the time, there were not a lot of like Asian-centric narratives out there. Mm-hmm. And coming up in the industry, there's always this thought that, you know, the, the competent, you know, the competent filmmaker is the white guy. And if you bring on the minority, especially like a minority woman, she's just there for optics or to make things look good. Mm-hmm. And I did not, you know, not that anybody would be talking about how much we paid, but it would make a difference to me. It would make a difference to the community. And I, you know, I know what I put into that movie. I know, you know, I know how I imprinted on it. I know how I made it mine. I, and the idea that there would be any perception that I was somehow some sort of garnishing on this, on this story was unacceptable to me. It it felt like I couldn't stomach it. And especially after um, the success of Crazy Rich Asians and this, I think, you know, the most special part of it for me wasn't the movie or that I got to write it was that there were all these amazing communities of Asian Americans throughout America, around the world, but, you know, over here that who cut, who came together to support the movie Sight Unseen. And, and people were sharing their stories about how they felt seen, how they felt represented, how, you know, it just, it just emboldened them in their own professional lives. And I felt after all of that and, you know, being on the publicity circuit and, you know, just being part of that wonderful movement that it would have been disingenuous to take and to take anything less. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, so I walked away. That was a very long answer to your question. No, no, that was, yeah, that's, that's, I think we'd prefer it that way. You know, it's, <laughs> it's also kind of, I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time because you mm. obviously you see whatever's in the press or whatever we can find, but to, to hear that from you, it, it almost breaks my heart a little bit, Ah, you know, cause I, I remember when the movie came out and it was like, wow, this is the definition of we're finally being seen. There's, there's stories that you've you don't talk about in public. And I, a lot of my non-Asian friends would come to me going like, so did that really happen? Mm-hmm. Your parents really play Mahjong and they, they judge people like that. I was like, 100%. <laughs> and the fact that I can't play means mm-hmm. I'm bringing dishonor to my family. You know? but, <laughs> but that's a whole nother story. So it, it breaks my heart a little bit. Cause I'm just sitting here going like, you know, I can only imagine how much of you was put into that script as well. And your story. And, and for that to kind of just get eclipsed just because of, whatever was going on in the publicity side, just... Yeah, because of nonsense. But I think that's, it's good for all of us to to expect that, that there's yeah. always, you know, there's just because something is a success doesn't mean we fix the world forever. Right. And I love that you brought up like the Mahjong playing and all that, that the book is called Crazy Rich Asians. And I remember thinking it's so easy for something like this to, to become a movie that, you know, just exoticizes us even more that I right. wanted to make sure like this is, you know, again, I grew up in Southeast Asia, like Malaysia, Singaporeans, like these are like the characters in there. My family, I like to yeah. say like they're not rich, but they're crazy as shit. <laughs> like the aunties, the Malay, the the food, the the dynamics, how things are talked about over Mahjong, how like the gossipy, like a uh, cluster of ants in Bible study, like that's entirely my family. And it, that was the first time in my career that I ever got to write for a culture that was mine, that for people who looked like me. And it was, it's, it's like breathing. It's like breathing. And you're like, you know, thinking, oh my God, do like just like white writers get to feel this all the time. And, (laughs) and, you know, then finally we get to, we get to play in it. And the, the most rewarding 
and magical part of that process was when you put, you know, when John Chu and I were coming up with scenes and, you know, where the stories were going to go, like we, it's not market tested. We're not like, do people really want to see a scene about people folding dumplings, a family, you know, making dumplings together? We just put it out there because that was an upbringing we felt was real to us. And if it was real to us, we knew it was going to feel real to other people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then it's out there. And what we realized, it wasn't, you know, just the Asian American communities, but, you know, Mexican American communities, like, you know, all these different underrepresented groups in, in America who had their own culinary traditions, they felt very seen by the movie as well. So, you know, just being able to put your heart and soul into something and then be told by, you know, like some faceless business affairs thing that, oh, well, according to our algorithm, like you should not be making as much like it's right. hell with that. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, Grace, not in all of that. I love John Chu. I love the actors. I love the franchise. I want yeah. there to be a sequel. I wish nothing but the best for them. Like I want crazy rich Asians to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice to see where they go. And, yeah. and, and just on the dumpling note, though, I think it's. The moment you said that, it actually reminded me of a memory. I think it was about two months after the, the movie came out, sitting with a bunch of friends and someone, this was back in the tech days when I was doing that, all that stuff. A guy from the country of Georgia said that he felt seen for the first time uh, because they make dumplings in yep. Georgia too. And I didn't know that until he told me. Yep. And I'm like, wow, like this is very cross-cultural. Like this is not just about crazy rich Asians. This is Pretty much, like you said, anyone who hasn't been seen. Yeah, we love a Georgian dumplings. The one they have like a little sour cream thing. It's yeah. it's fabulous. Yeah, it's so yep. good. Yeah, yeah. There's sour cream, mm -hmm. and what makes it a Georgian dumpling? The the, the skin is a lot thicker. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. But the mm -hmm. process of making it is almost identical. Stuffed meat, and then they just have nice sour cream Whoa. stuff inside. We'll have to go sometime. I, I, if the place is still open and survive mm -hmm. COVID, we'd love to take yeah. you. Georgia trip. Belize, like that place. Mm, uh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, she know. <laughs> Listen, there's like, I eat a lot. Girl eats. But yeah, the, you know, and, and the interesting thing about the dumpling scene too, you know, you're working with these very, very supportive producers, but you realize when you're pitching scenes like that, like, oh, this is entirely foreign to them. I remember when, John and I pitched it. One of the producers were like, that sounds like a made up thing that, you know, for the movie, we just want to make sure it's real, that it's not like some, you know, weird, yeah. like, oh, this is what Asians do. We make dumplings. I'm like, oh like we make dumplings. Like, we, you <laughs> yeah. know, we, yeah. we, we gamble, we smoke, and we make dumplings. Like, this, yeah. all things can be true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I would have questioned that as a producer if you're like, let's make orange chicken and beef broccoli. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> but dumpling, oh, my God. He was offended. Okay. Not offended, mm -hmm. but confused. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they, they just wanted to make sure that it was culturally authentic. And I know where it's coming from because, yeah. you know, we all grew up watching their culture. Like we know what the classic, you know, Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving looks like. And in a way that, and it's not their fault. Like they don't mm -hmm. know how we grew up. They didn't grow up watching Hong Kong cinema or like, you know, sitting in our tables for like Lunar New Year. So, you know, you got to, you got to educate. Yeah. Going back to the Mahjong scene, like I know you had a heavy influence on that scene. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it was described as like, essentially the, the final battle fight scene as as if it were like a, a crouching tiger hidden dragon fight scene <laughs> oh, except yeah. it was mahjong so um no that was that was great yeah i i really liked that scene a lot ah well it, it i love that you you love it and that it resonated and it all came from a place of um it all came from a very authentic place of my family being degenerate freaking gamblers <laughs> my father was a professional gambler so you, my, are yeah. you good are you good I'm not, my, my mother would say I'm trash. Like oh. I can do it, but I'm not as, you know, I'm not, pro, I'm not professional like the church ladies. The church yeah. ladies, by the way, they call it fellowship hour, uh -huh. you know, because it's all about communing and like uh -huh. building fellowship, mm -hmm. but money is changing hands and they take that shit seriously. Mm -hmm. Like you owe $23, you owe 20, you better pay up at the, at the church lady group. Yeah. Do you know how to play? I, I barely know how to play. I think I'm actually true trash when it comes to it. Cause anytime yeah. I'm playing with my relatives, but my grandmother, Mm -hmm. He's so into it. She's in Hong Kong right now. Oh, oh God. She's Hong Kong ho no, she's, uh, Mahjong. Yeah. Hong Kong Mahjong. And she will go every Wednesday and Thursday, she says, to her like fellow clubs thing with all the mm -hmm. grandmas. And they wait in line and they play bracket Mahjong. 
bracket as mechanism. in like as in there'll be like a table of four right oh it's like a tournament it's a tournament i love it and they'll just break down and break down and the pile yep. gets bigger and bigger and the oh. winner takes all oh i like that I, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like no it's like like no hold'em texas poker tournaments <laughs> yeah. of just like you take the whole thing like that's that's intense yes. i like your grandma yeah wsop <laughs> for mahjong let's mm -hmm. let's talk about it espn <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously it's not just like oh you know special traditional game like the, the, the best thing about it is it goes against every Asian stereotype you can think of. Like yeah. there's like smoking and superstition and like you get cussed out if mm -hmm. like if you don't play right. And it's one of those games oh where goodness. where you can't just like, you, you know, you could be a genius. You're not going to learn it on Friday and play it like a pro on Monday because mm -hmm. there's the whole thing of like muscle memory of how like you're shuffling the cards, how you're stacking it, this unsaid etiquette of like, you know, that, that, that nice clackety clack sound mm -hmm. and who's taking the who's taking cards first. I remember when my mother taught us, like when you learn how to play, you play with cash immediately. Like when we like gamble with Chinese New Year money, yeah. six years old, whatever, like you have all that cash, you are gambling with real money. First, we're playing like blackjack. And then when you get old enough, you play, you know, you can play mahjong, yeah. but you play with cash. And and when you lose, your mother will take your money from you and she will keep it. There's no giving your money back. And I remember asking my mother what? about this. <laughs> And yeah, the, the, sounds like how I was raised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the phrase is like you have to pay to learn mahjong right. because if you don't have skin in the game, if you don't feel the loss, you are playing differently. Mm -hmm. It's the same with with Texas Hold'em. If you if you can go all in with imaginary money, you're not really playing right. right so yeah, yeah. I, real stakes. I love that. Yeah, like you don't feel the rest. You don't feel mm -hmm. the, the pressure. Yeah. Yep. I think I, even so in a, in a parenting role, I think it shows that your actions have true consequences. Yep. Which I don't think that's actually shown as much in like at least growing up in ABC culture, at least how yeah. I was. But yeah, I would have loved that. Don't gamble. Yeah. Yes, it's a path to like, <laughs> yes, perdition. It's no good. But oh, God, so fun. <laughs> Guys, remember, this is not a gambling advertisement. We don't condone <laughs> it. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, just don't be a degenerate gambler, but so fun. Yeah. Shout out to our sponsor, DraftKings. I'm kidding. <laughs> Shout out to our sponsors, DraftKings. Yeah. If you sign up with our code, David, yeah. you'll get $50 in gambling. No, <laughs> I'm Vietnamese, but I, I don't gamble. Yeah. But, but if you sign up with a Dell's code, it's $150. Ooh, there, you go. there you go. I know. I'm going to get an endorsement deal coming out of this. Yeah. So let's transition to the next big project that you have, which is Raya. Mm. So when Raya first came out, I think it came out roughly around the pandemic. Mm -hmm. She's Southeast Asian. Yes. So are you. So am I. And so when I finally, because we had, there's Mulan, right? And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's about as good as it's going to get for me because Asians kind of get grouped as Asians, right? But That's when true. Raya came out, I was like, what? Who mm -hmm. did this? Who did this? Mm -hmm. You saw the durian flying around the yes. screen, babe. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. Was, Some mango steam. Oh, God, mango steam. It was amazing. And, like, the thing I loved about Raya is, like, she was a princess, but she's not princessy at all. She's, mm -hmm. like, a badass. Yeah. You know? So I love that that differentiation between all like the the princes that we grew up with you know yeah so i guess just to describe the excitement on on the the opportunity with disney to be able to like kind of mold and portray this character that that you know so closely related to your culture yeah i i think i got really really lucky like i came in at disney it is a director based studio and the directors of rye at the time i think you know they at the time, it was this more Chinesey, like you know, East Asian with a dragon story. But our directors had just taken a trip to Southeast Asia, and it blew their minds. Yeah. So the the excitement around it, and again, you know, you, you don't want to tell a story from a woke st standpoint, which is like it has to be an empowered girl who just doesn't get saved. Like, it, it, but it came from a very real place of what was that Southeast Asian spirit? And again, you know, you have a you have a Southeast Asian mom. Yeah. Southeast Asian women are known for being like, in, you know, just having a tremendous amount of agency in their culture, in yeah. their families, even if you, even if the cultures are seen as like, you know, favoring guys or all of us grew up with like very, very strong minded mothers strong and grandmothers. Yeah. And, grandmothers mm -hmm. yeah. and so wanting to be able to reflect that in the storytelling was exciting. The other thing that was exciting is I'm a mom and my, I have two kids. I have an older daughter and she was little at the time. And for the, the, the idea that, you know, my little girl was going to grow up in America 
with a Disney princess that looks like her. I was like, this is this is game changing. So yeah. basically, I did it for very selfish reasons. I did it so that my kids <laughs> could look at a you know a Disney no, action figure so and much. be like, that's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I like again. I thank you so much for for putting it out in existence, Raya the character, because again, like now. There's a princess that kind of looks like me. Really big question, though. <laughs> like is she? You do. Yeah, like, like, am I looking well, at Raya right now? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Is she Vietnamese? What? Is oh, she, the the cultures we like to say like they're meshed, right? There we, you know, it, it was it was actually like a, a really interesting deliberate choice because we didn't want to be like, okay, well, this is Vietnam and this is Malaysia and that's yeah. Laos, you know, because you didn't want to paint one nation as like these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Right. We the the great thing about Disney, and this is the one thing they get right, they have like money and resources, is that they go, they can afford to go really deep into the culture. And so when we would have our cultural experts, we would, you know, they would go to the countries and we'd have a long partnership with them. Oh. It's to get to the core of what what unified all these different Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. So, mm. but the, but profile wise, yeah, I think at the beginning, you know, it was, it's easy to have an Asian female kick-ass character and, you know, and have her look kind of like, you know, let's say like light-skinned, mm. you know, Chinese, Japanese, like those mm. features. The Southeast Asian features are a little bit different. We've all kind of grown up with some degree of colorism. Mm. You don't have to be Asian to, to experience that. I'm like a brown ass, like, you know, Chinese Malaysian girl. <laughs> and so we wanted, we wanted a character, you know, with, with those features, with with right. that coloring and you'd see that also reflected in the other characters and people in Rai like different body sizes and things kind of like re again seeing yeah. it reveling in it so you can see them as characters and not just like some sort of like cartoon stereotype right right, right. wow yeah I, I did want to ask then with this cultural exploration that you're talking about mm -hmm. diving deep on that did you discover something about let's just say your heritage or your culture that you didn't even know about through this journey oh it's so much because I'm ignorant. Like I, the, one of my favorite things was when you're in the story room at Disney, it's a lot like a big writer's room. So it's me with all our story artists, you know, who, a lot of whom came from the culture. So when we're talking about lang uh, languages and certain things of just like, oh, well, we have this in our culture too, like this fabric or this saying, even the name Raya, when we were people, we were trying to come up with a name for her. And Raya was one of those things that, you know, spoke to me in Malay. Raya means like a celebration, like Hari Raya means like a mm. day of celebration. And Raya is just like a wonderful, positive thing. Mm. And my friend, you know, from Thailand said, well, Raya, again, means like this like glorified leader. And going back to all those like Sanskrit, Hindu, like those ancient roots and finding all those things that really connect us, mm -hmm. you realize like, you know, because growing up, you're like, well, I'm Malaysian. There's nothing like being a Filipino, et cetera. Yeah. And you realize that, you know, you just have so much shared culture and heritage. It's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I like that you couldn't really tell. It was just like a, a like a full on representation of the region, mm -hmm. and and anyone could feel like that that was them, you know. Our fighting styles were real though. Like my co writer Queen oh, yeah? Gwen, it's amazing because he's also a stunt coordinator. So oh. all her fighting styles are like specifically so cool. Southeast Asian, like Silat and those things with like the sticks. It's all very specific to the region versus you know versus East Asian martial arts. That's amazing. That's cool. I didn't know that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Let's rewatch it. Yeah. You, we we got we'll do, we'll do a, a a team watch again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And visit Georgia for dumplings. And visit Georgia for dumplings. Yeah. And and just attack him with short sticks just cause. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But transition really fast to Joyride. Mm. Congratulations on this is your like rookie card of a movie a directorial debut. Just to get into it, what is what was your most favorite thing about? The trend, that transition, now you're directing. What's your most favorite thing about directing and also the most stressful thing? The best thing about directing was realizing I could do it at all. That reconfirmed what many writers suspect, which is writing really is the hardest part of the process. No. Because as writers, ultimately, even if you do it in a team, even if it's collaborative, at the end of the day, if you're the writer, you do it alone, you are in a fetal position, sweating that out <laughs> alone. <sighs> as a director, you have the benefit of all these amazing teams being better at your job than you are. Mm. But you have to have, you have to have a vision for your movie and you have to be okay with 300 people asking you 300 questions all day long. Wow. And my my background, I think, as a writer really served me as a director because it's really all we're doing is we're telling stories. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, to anyone who's listening, if you are a woman of color with any dreams of directing or anybody of color, you know, anybody who's like outside of the imprint of what we think, you know, an auteur director is, 
I would highly encourage you to get into it. Directing is hard. You don't see a lot of Asian directors. You don't see a ton. Actually, we have wonderful Asian directors, but I wish, I just wish there were more because it's one of those paths where there isn't like a clear ladder to it. You don't, you can't be an assistant director and get promoted to director. You just have to show up fully fleshed as a director or not. And women especially have this idea that, oh, you know, I have to check all these boxes. I have to be super perfect to put myself up for yeah. it. You don't, you know, but you have to have a clear sense of what your story is. Yeah. No, just to kind of piggyback off that is, you know, the we have, we're starting to see an uptick on Asian actors with actresses, which is great. Mm-hmm. But the age or the the minority minority directors and writers, those those are the people that are pushing the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, if we don't have enough of those, we can have as many actors and actresses we want, but the story won't be told. Right. And so, I think that's really important that you brought that up because you know the stories that need to be told where you know, let's say a, a white male director wouldn't be able to kind of relate to, you know? Yeah. And it's difficult because we're, you know, I don't want to say like a white male director can't, you know, doesn't get it. Like any, you don't need to be Asian or you don't need to be Chinese to write a Chinese script or Malaysian to write a Malaysian yeah. script, but you do need to be somebody who understands that culture and loves it mm-hmm. and be able to, you know, really like feel and bleed for that character and re- and just live that world, have it like just penetrate your skin. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a lot easier for underrepresented groups to write for mainstream culture because we had to grow up with our culture. We were, right. You know, the, the music, the TV shows, the the movie, the movies, whereas they haven't had the benefit of growing up with God of Gamblers and all the Jackie Chan and Jet Li movies, you know, and so it's just really being able to come up with stories for these wonderful new actors to inhabit. If you don't have if you don't have the real authentic stories, then, you know, our our actors are going to be kind of stranded on a limb because then they're just saying somebody else's uh, story. Right. Yep. That's a fight for all of us. That's a fight for all of us to just get out there because people aren't trying to cut us out of the narrative, but people tell stories from what feels like an authentic place. And so if you don't have, it's, it goes beyond like writers and directors. We need writers, directors, executives, producers, like heads of department, even on my movie Joyride, like being able to find set designers and costume designers who came from the culture or understood and loved the Mm -hmm. culture you need all of that firing on all cylinders because we have a little bit more of a barrier to co- to overcome for people to understand and you know see see us see our culture and and accept it and and find it entertaining and find it like vibrating at a certain quality level you know we we need so much support it's a it's a village it's not going to take one amazing auteur that to change the industry right well speaking of directors i know that john chu Mm. You you know you you've worked closely with him. He if you, John Chu is the director of Crazy Rich Asians, and I, I heard he assisted you with the approach to Joyride. Can you speak on how important or impactful he was to that process, as well as just kind of having someone that understands? I love John. Like if had if I had not ha- already named my two children, I would have <laughs> named my daughter John Chu the second. And, um, John's amazing. So he, I would not have the career I have today. I would not be directing this thing if it wasn't for him. So I got the opportunity to direct Joyride, and that was right as the pandemic hit. So I, you know, I had to put myself through at home director school by talking to all my friends. And John is the only director who was you know, doing it at a certain level. Mm. And he was busy as hell with, you know, with a project that was secret at the time, but we all know he's directing Wicked. So he, he's got like a pile of kids, he's got this project, but mm. he would still take time and Zoom with me for hours, like hours, like talking me through how he wow. pitched um, Crazy Rich Asians, what to think about, you know, when you're on set. And he gave me one of my most valuable lessons, which was, the difference between a director and a writer and everybody else is a director on the day has to be completely in the moment mm. as writers, as, you know, people who worry about producing, we tend to exist in many different time zones. Like we're in the past, we're in the present, we're in the future, we're troubleshooting, we're worrying about other things and directing your, you have to be purely in the moment with your actors in that scene, you know, determining if you're getting everything you need because you are not going to be here again. As a writer, you can always revisit a page. You can always change a scene. As a director, it's just like, once we wrap this, we are going. Like, you know, you may not be back here for reshoots. And I found it a remarkable metaphor and allegory for life of, you know, being that person in the moment, being okay with being viewed as a person who calls the shots. That's really beautiful. 
Yeah. I, I almost, it reminds me of something that one of my mentors told me about culinary, where basically you only have one opportunity to serve a dish. And you have to also start living like that as well outside of the kitchen. Because a lot of chefs will get so honed in on precision mm-hmm. and perfection to the point that they, you know, we've had, we've lost greats. They've killed themselves. They've completely left the industry because of that. Yep. But in, instead, if you focus on the excellence of that moment at that time, then you can give the best that you can. And so I think that's so beautiful that you shared that. I, I love that you brought up the the parallels to to you know, the culinary world and to so many creative endeavors where it's, it's all like surfing. It's like surfing and, you know, putting yourself out there and not being afraid to be the person like you, you know, you're creating this kitchen, you're kind of putting yourself out there of just like, I didn't have the training for this, but I'm going to go with it. And and it's also an exercise in trusting your gut that when you try to come up with something creative, like if you, I, I, I'm just speaking for you, like as a chef, like I know a, a, a vocation I know nothing about. But if you if you if you start creating a dish from a place of fear of just like, oh, well, most people, you know, like this or want to have that or like I had a bad review of something. And so I've got to make it the, this other way. Right. And it's the same for filmmaking and writing. Once you if you start creating from a place of fear, it's paralyzing. And so you have to, you know, you, you just have to kind of surf on this wave of like, you know, your own chutzpah. Yeah. And I think it's 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 very interesting. I know I've been trying to hear a little bit from Heidi, but like one of the things that I thought was incredible about her story and Ashley, her co-founder, is the fact that they took something that was so traditional and homey, which is the tongyen mm-hmm. with the black sesame oh, and yum. saying, we're going to do something with this. We don't care what the rest of the world thinks. We're just going to show our version of it. And now they have that black sesame crunchy butter. And it, you could put it on anything, but yet every time you taste it, it's nostalgic. Yeah. I don't know if like in Southeast Asian culture, they do black sesame, like tongue yen. Yeah. Um, okay. we, yeah, we we t- tend to do like the, the plain glutinous ball sometimes, yeah, but yeah, yeah tongue yen and also like the peanut filling. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah. But that's exactly it. Like with Heidi of just going with a thing. And, yeah. and, it's, and I think it's even harder for Asian food because there's just like thousands of years of tradition for so many things where they're like, why would you want to come up with, with, you know, black sesame paste or with like fly by Jing, why would you want to come up with a new like Chinese, like, you know, spicy sauce? Like what do you have to offer? And it's like, we all have something to offer if we feel strongly enough about it. I think that's a key takeaway of this episode for (laughs) sure. Just take the leap of faith and feel strongly and keep going. Right. Yeah, definitely. Just to wrap it up. Is there a specific piece of advice that you hold close to you that you want to share with maybe viewers that are in the entertainment space? In the entertainment space? You know, I think we actually did cover it just in this last thing, which is the coming from a place of joy. Mm. And it's easy to say, of course, you need everything. You need the 10,000 hours. You need to hone your craft. You need to know, like, in a really honest way, is this your passion or are you doing it because it feels like the thing to do? Like, you know, do do you love doing it? But once you've answered all those questions and you've put in all that work, it's it's that like come from a place of just sheer exuberant joy. It's especially prescient for Asian American writers and filmmakers. And I say this only because, you know, I've been involved with Cape and Gold House and a lot of mentorship programs. A lot of times, like our narratives here tend to be stuck at that level of, you know, fighting against an injustice that happened to us mm-hmm. or fighting against this world that doesn't see us. But that shouldn't be the extent of your message. And again, not to say that it's not an important story. It needs to be told. Mm -hmm. But there's also a special magic spark in you that exists beyond that, that is transcendent. And I love, I bring everything back to food. It's like with food, it's not like you want to do like the best version of like this Chinese dish. It's like something that is transcendent, that is you, that, that honors your culture, honors like the discipline and, you know, the profiles that went into this, but vibrates at this transcendent level that anybody can see it and appreciate it for what it is. And I want that for our writers, our young writers and directors and actors to kind of get past that horrible barrier of Mm. like, the garbage that the world is serving you, the injustice, not to, again, not to say it's not real, it's fucking real, like, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's, it's a challenge to kind of get past the bullshit barrier and get to a place where it's just you as a, you as a shiny creator. I love that. That's very powerful. I mean, it just, I, I feel the tears coming out on, <laughs> on all of us just because it's, we get so caught up in the past sometimes and mm-hmm. how we are, but we forget about our today, we forget about tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And I think everything that you've just said just resonates so hard because it's like the question I always ask my team here is why not? 
Mm. Why don't you do this? Mm-hmm. And there's this expectation from either how we were raised, who yep. we surround ourselves with, and to be able to say, why not do this? And going back to food, just because it's always been done a specific way, why not change it? Yeah. Just the same in music and, and, and entertainment. So that's, yeah. that's incredible. So thank you. Oh my God. Like (laughs) I, you know, you're doing, you're doing like the hard work and being out there and like, you know, creating new dishes. Like we're like writers. I feel like we just like come up with like ridiculous stories that we crack ourselves (laughs) up. (laughs) Well, I think it's a a perfect time too for our last thing. (gasps) There's the last thing. Yes. We call it the final bite and it is something that is ultra decadent. I think it's a great way to round out the, the podcast. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring over the final bite to you shortly. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Holy. Just because you're here on the show. Stop. Yes. Uh, this is my love language right here. Caviar? Wow. Ooh. Stop it. I oh my don't God. tempt me. I'm going to. Oh, man. Oh, man. So Dude. For, for people that can't Dude. see, there's uh, a little bit of scallop there and caviar. Yeah. This is a caviar with a side of scallop and sauce. What? Is this like a Kaluga? Is this a Savruga? What is it? This is an Ocetra hybrid. Oh, nice. Okay. So the caviar is from our friends over at Astria Caviar. Mm-hmm. They work over with us at Roslyn and they are known for as the Mission Star Caviar. You can tell immediately by the color and the size of the pearls, not only are the sturgeon harvested a lot later, but there also is a significantly less amount of salt in them. And so if you look really closely, there's a little hint of olive green in there. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between a quality caviar versus a, you know, for lack of a better term, crappy caviar. Because crappy caviar is dark black because mm-hmm. the amount of salt that they're putting in. So it's anywhere from eight to 10% versus this is less than 3%. So you can really taste the fish oil, the omega-3s, all the flavor. This is their Ocetra hybrid. It's phenomenal. We're serving it on top of an imported Hokkaido scallop that's just been pan seared with fresh olive oil from Graza, their sizzle. And then we finish it with salt. I wanted something very simple. The acidity comes from the side and that's our yuzu garlic crema that we make. And so it's bright. It's got a little accent of that Asian flavoring that you get with roasted garlic and the fresh yuzu and it's pasted on there. So please enjoy your final bite. Wow. Jasper, talk, this, talk dirty to me. This, <laughs> I wish this was like a TV show. People need this. I'm just, after that whole intro, I'm going to try to try a little bit of the caviar on its own. Yes, please. Please try it just by itself. It's super mm. creamy. Oh, wow. And this dish is supposed to be extra decadent. I'd recommend eating the scallop and the caviar and then finishing with just a fork full of the sauce to bring it all together. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and a shout out to Astrio Caviar. Thank you for sending Thank us you, over, Charlie. Thank you. Give us a moment if we black out. <laughs> mm. I'm like giggling, ready to eat a kind of scallop. It's my favorite thing to eat. If you guys haven't already noticed, I think it's been on the show. Like the scallops have been on the show like three times, but never like this. <laughs> this, this is next level. Mm. This is stupid, ridiculous. Oh. So good. Mm. Just at that crema at the end. So Adele, I wanted to squeeze in one last question while we're eating. Oh, I got some caviar on the mic. <laughs> Any new projects in the horizon? Things you're excited about, things you can tell us about, maybe things you can't tell us about, but mm. you tell us anyway. <laughs> we'll feed you I, another spoonful of yeah. caviar, if that helps. We'll, we'll barter. <laughs> I'll tell you anything with a spoonful of this caviar, but the writer's strike just ended a few weeks ago, a yeah. couple of weeks ago. And so the whole town went from like doing nothing to suddenly all the writers are have like all kinds of projects. I just pitched on a feature today that I'm going to be writing, directing, and producing. I'm very excited wow. about it. I can't talk about it yet because it hasn't been like officially announced, but hey, I'm, how much is gonna take? <laughs> how much we got we got caviar here. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. thank you, thank you. Is it in the uh, feature film space? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you see kind of first see yourself just sticking to that like tv is kind of like a just past memory no i'm a i'm a tv girl at the end of the day and i i think with television viewers can develop a, a kind of relationship oh, with yeah. the world mm-hmm. and the characters in a way that you can't with feature films and so i'm dying to go back to television and you know either write a pilot or direct one or at least create that world 
and get back into that. Um, that's my that's my happy place. Adele, I hope you had fun as much as we did. This is just a treat, just kind of getting to know your story. Congrats on Joe Rad again. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's hilarious. We saw it when it first came out. Yes, we in did. Theaters mm-hmm. and just the energy in that movie is intense. It's insane. But thank you so much. This is the favorite podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> and I want to say it's like almost entirely because of the caviar, but it's not. You guys have been <laughs> delightful. Delightful. Almost as delightful as those prawn head guts and Ooh. that and that last caviar bottle. Imagine the combination. Yeah. Oh, Sheesh. oh, we're going to have to put the prawn head guts on the caviar and I'll give you the chips as I promised. Oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I could just die. That would be, be like the, the last bite I want before I die. This was delightful. Thank you so much for Thank having you. me. We appreciate you. Thank you, Adele. But that wraps it up. That is another episode of The Durian Pod. My name is David. And I'm Jasper. And I'm Heidi. And see you next time on The Durian Pod. Peace. Hey guys, it's Jasper from the Durian Pod. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to see more food, more drinks, and great stories about literally going against the grain or maybe eating some edamame, be sure to follow, like, and subscribe. And you'll be able to find the Durian Pod anywhere you see podcasts. See you soon.